0: Welcome to the Powers That Be daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, October 14th, and today Tara Palmieri is here to talk about Joe Biden and the will he or won't he run questions swirling around the president. And if he doesn't, will Gavin Newsom make a bid? The California governor is raising his profile with Democrats. But does that mean he actually wants to take a shot at the White House? And later on, Alex Bigler speaks to Tina Wynn. We like to call Tina the MAGA whisperer here, but we haven't really explained why until now. Alex dives into Tina's origin story in the right-wing media world, a story that includes sharing an office with some of the most prominent figures in the conservative ecosystem. I wonder if she can pass a message to C. Bannon for me. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm joined today by Tara Palmieri. Uh, Tara, you and I had the first opportunity to do... What do we call these things at Puck? A talk back where we just sort of like throw questions at each other.
1: Yeah, q and a.
0: Q and a And it was fun. Uh, we, we basically wrote about and talked about whatever we want. (laughs) We opened with some Biden 2024 intrigue. And then we got into some DeSantis stuff and some midterm stuff and some Gavin Newsom stuff. Right. I do want to talk to you about Gavin Newsom, but I feel like the at least Gavin Newsom 2024 buzz, which might just be a Twitter phenomenon at the moment, begins and ends with Biden's decision about whether he's going to run in 2024, like if Biden runs. I mean, there might be someone that primaries him, but it's not going to be Gavin Newsom.
1: I agree with you on that. Yeah.
0: What's your take right now? Just the latest on where you think Biden is at on the re-election question?
1: I think there's still some time. I think they're going to see how the midterms shake out. But I think everyone else still needs like the Gavin Newsoms, the Phil Murphys, the Roy Coopers. They all need to keep having those conversations with donors. They need to start building political operations because you have to be able to like basically snap into place and start a campaign. As long as Biden keeps saying, I'm not sure if I'm running, the guy's turning 80. You know, his family's obviously been in a big issue with Hunter now. I mean, I can't imagine he would run if Hunter ends up being indicted, right? There's a lot to consider. And I think until it's formally decided and announced, which I predict will probably happen in the spring unless Republicans like really start jockeying and it forces Democrats to show their hand earlier. I think will probably hear early spring from Biden about his decision. And in the meantime, I think it's going to be hard for Gavin Newsom to sit on his hands. So he's picking other ways to dominate the news cycle.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I've kind of always thought that Biden would make his decision after the midterms, regardless of what his approval rating is or how he does in the midterms with his family. And that it's, it'll be about his age and health and stamina and ability to do this again. He's the president. He can do what he wants. But at some point, you have to let other Democrats raise money and build a campaign. And like, because remember, like the Iowa, sorry, if I want, for the Democrats, it probably won't be Iowa. Uh, we, we don't know yet. But the first four states,
2: mm-hmm. you
0: know, that's the very beginning of 2024. So, you know, basically, if Biden waits until the spring, that only gives folks like eight months to build a campaign and then like get to the first coxes and primaries. And like, that's not a lot of time. And so he does have to give people some, breathing room. And we should say like all signs like Biden's White House team and his political advisors are all like, he's running, he's going to run. But like people say stuff all the time, politicians that they're not going to run until they do or they are going to run until they don't. And, you know, until the words come out of his mouth, we don't know.
1: Exactly. I think it's interesting that they're having the DNC create the political operation, their their campaign for them. It's almost like creating a structure that could be handed over to another candidate.
0: Yes. And that stands in contrast to like, what Obama did with like keeping all of his data, email addresses, running his fundraising, whatever, through his Obama for America committee rather than the DNC.
1: As we know from Biden, he takes his time on these things. He Biden's his time, as they say. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I do feel like Gavin Newsom, like you said, is raising his profile right now by getting into fights with Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis, other governors who are republican and he's trying to like you know hoist a flag from california and say we are liberal utopia uh we have gun laws here and we'll protect abortion here and we have a minimum wage here and we'll do all the things that these assholes aren't doing in these other states right and all of it's led to this like speculation you know which he's not new to i feel like he's been subject to this speculation going back to like When he was mayor of San Francisco, in part because he's just like handsome. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, oh, my God, that guy looks like a president. He's going to run for president one day. Yeah. Regardless of like whether you think he will or won't run, like, do you think he is the kind of candidate with the kind of profile who can win a Democratic nomination?
1: I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he wins a Democratic nomination, but I almost feel like he could beat Trump if that's does that sound crazy to say that? No, I don't think it
0: sounds crazy. I mean, I think Biden makes a mistake by saying I'm the only guy that can beat Trump. He's the only guy who has beaten Trump. But like, we don't know if another guy can't beat Trump.
1: Yeah, I always think that too. I was like, I don't think he's the only guy who can beat Trump out there. But you're right. He's the only guy who has. What do you think of his messaging of freedom? Like he's trying to say, like, I'm the true advocate of freedom and I'm bringing freedom to Texas and and to Florida. I mean, do you think that Translates. This sort of
0: jibes with some of the reporting I did on like Gen Z and like why they why they didn't like Joe Biden and what why they don't like politics generally. They feel like their freedoms are being taken away, like their access to the economy, you know, possibly their ability to marry the person they love, their ability to have an abortion and get access to certain kinds of health care. I think the message, in other words, that the other party is taking away your freedoms is an interesting way to flip on its head. The same message you hear from Republicans and conservatives for a long time, like those like the Tea Party people were the ones being like, the government's going to take away our freedoms and not just liberal America, but like everyday America for people at least under the age of 50, like it, it kind of does feel like, you know, certain rights are being taken away. I think Newsom is on to something there. What's interesting is that Josh Barrow, who I think is like holding it down is like a, I am a centrist. Democrat pundit. And <laughs> he like loves right. to take shots at like whatever's popular on Twitter at the moment. And he's right most of the time. He wrote a screed basically saying like Gavin Newsom is gross and embarrassing. Don't talk about him as president. And it basically like went through all of the personal scandal stuff, married to Kimberly Guilfoyle. They got divorced. He cheated with his campaign manager's wife. Like he had this like single party guy face, dated like a much, much younger woman. There are some like lots of negative aspects to new someone in that sense you know and you just have to think that like yeah he is the governor of the most maybe liberal state in the country and does that play in middle america like the guy from san francisco
1: right coastal elite
0: you know coastal elite literally like went to the french laundry while ordering the state to like shut down there's so many things that look bad. The flip side, which I wrote about in the piece, just because I feel like Josh Barrow covered the bad stuff, was like, in this last session alone, he signed almost a thousand bills. He just this week sent out like thousand dollar rebates to Californians for like high gas prices to help cover the cost of gas. Like he's done a ton of shit. And like he has done a lot at at the state government level, both in terms of like executive rulemaking and signing bills that would be the envy of a democratic governor in any state. And so like- he would have a message to take out into the country if he runs for president saying, this is what I did, this is what I did, this is what I did. And I think that message could work with Democrats. Um, the question is, does it work with, like when you get to a general election perhaps, does it work with black voters? Does it work with white working class voters? Does it work with swing voters? I mean, because you basically win statewide if you win a nomination, because the state is so big and you win campaigns by like spending money on television ads and digital, you almost like don't develop a lot of like retail touch and a deep connection with voters. And so that's something that might be a detriment to him if he like decides to run for president and goes to like New Hampshire. And like, that's like just hand to hand combat, shaking hands, you know, talking to people every day. And yes, he does that to some extent here in California, but it definitely feels like he feels a little bit more remote to voters because this is the biggest state in the entire country. (laughs) He can be a little stiff and a little awkward. He's not as like slick as people might assume because he's like so handsome and has his hair gel.
1: But you know, he's got some assets. The other thing about him is that he has shown that he's willing to punch back at Republicans forcefully. And I don't think the others have really done it in a way that like shifts the narrative or the media message and to go after like, he's picked some good targets, like, Greg Abbott, the popular governor in Texas, Ron DeSantis, like your targets kind of tell you a lot about yourself. And I think if people are wondering, like, do we have a guy with enthusiasm and energy and the will to fight back? He's shown that that's him. Whereas I think the question that a lot of people, even those close to Biden question is, does he have the fight? Like, is he ready to fight? Because this is a slugfest and it's not going to be pretty, especially if Trump's in the ring. And I think if there's anything that he's done is shown that he's willing to get in it.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think... You're right, he's made a bet that one, reporters will write about you if you pick a fight. That's just like how political journalism works. But he does speak to a thirst among partisans that we have to fight back against like these evil Republicans. And like Joe, that's not Joe Biden's temperament at all. Like Joe Biden was very quiet during the mansion negotiations, never said anything bad about Joe. Manchin was working behind the scenes. We can get stuff done. We can still work with the other party. That's his worldview and always has been. And Newsom is making a bet that Democrats, especially younger ones, might be a little more hard nosed, might want their leaders to throw more punches. But yeah, the interesting thing about Newsom, too, is like you can tell, like, I kind of get the sense that like he's gotten under Biden's skin a little bit, too. Like Newsom knows when he has to work with the White House. Like he did that with Trump. Like he would shit on Trump all the time. But like when the wildfires happened out here, He worked with Trump because he had to get some federal money. You know, Newsom has done, I think, like two interviews now where he said, there's no national message from Democrats. Like, Democrats need a message. I'm not hearing anything from national Democrats, which is kind of like a straw man. Like, there's no, like, the DNC doesn't have a message. Like, it's the president, I guess, is supposed to have a message.
1: And it only hurts frontliners when they have a message that's too loud, don't you think? Especially when your president is unpopular.
0: Yes, let everyone make a message for their own state and their own district, absolutely. And then Newsom was opposed to this deal out here in California that would have made it easier for farm workers to unionize basically. And Biden got involved in like that bill and like put out a statement urging Newsom to sign this bill. And so basically like Biden waded into state politics to like poke Newsom and then Newsom like flipped and ended up like signing the bill. And so like, I feel like Biden wouldn't have done that if he wasn't paying attention to Newsom, just kind of like rabble rousing and like trying to get some attention for himself.
1: Oh, yeah. They're super sensitive to all of these, you know, J.B. Pritzker, Gavin Newsom, Phil Murphy.
0: That just brings us full circle and I'll let you go. But it's just like Biden's team is keen on making sure all the gears are going to work if Biden says yes, I'm going to run again. They just don't like it that these other Democrats are sort of speaking up and trying to like throw their hat in the ring, even if it's like a wink and a nod, because it just emasculates Biden at the national level. and You can just tell they don't like it and the people around Biden don't like it.
1: Oh, absolutely. They're sensitive to it, as they should be. And also the perception that he's a lame duck does not help, especially if we're going to have a split Congress, which looks like increasingly that will happen.
0: All right, Tara, thank you so much. Let's do another talk back soon. Thanks, Peter. When we come back, Alex Bigler is here with this week's Feedback Friday.
2: Everybody and happy Friday. This is Alex Bigler, and I am joined today by Tina Nguyen, who is her very first time on the Friday segment
3: with me. I am so excited to finally be here. Whenever I listen to the pod and there's a Friday segment, you and whoever is on the Friday segment seem to be having all of the fun in the world. And I am like, why have I not done this yet? So here
2: I am, people. Let's rock and roll. The reason why is because I kept saying, I think it's, I think I want to talk to Tina. I don't know if I'm ready. I don't think I'm good enough yet to talk to the Tina. So I'm very excited to have uh, you Jesus. here. <laughs> Tina and I have a very important thing in common, which is that we both have a really deep love and appreciation, i I dare say, call it respect, for the cuisine mm-hmm. that is hot dogs.
3: Oh, yes. Any sort of tubular meat in a bun,
2: it's sacred
3: in a way. And- one might be like, wait, you built an entire friendship around hot dogs? That's so ridiculous. And to that I say, you don't
2: understand. Yeah, go to a Nathan's and understand. Honestly, it's it's a deeper friendship than people I've known for years at this point. And I don't think we've found anyone else at Puck who, like, A, not only appreciates a hot dog, but doesn't think it's, like, a disgusting thing. So, um. So you'll always have a special place in my heart. Aw, thank you. Well, anyway, I I assure you that while Tina and I could talk about hot dogs for probably hours, I um, am excited to talk to Tina today because of her work and her writing. I read all your work, obviously. I listen to you when you're on the podcast, I talk to you on a very regular basis, and at Puck, we often refer to you as, you know, the MAGA whisperer or or something of that nature, but I'm not sure we've ever kind of dug into or let you explain to listeners why that is, what your background is, or what perspective that you bring that allows you to cover MAGA America and conservative America with the level of nuance that you do.
3: Sure um so it's I would call it like a, an origin story of sorts So when I was younger I attended Claremont McKenna, which is this uh, liberal arts college in California and through a couple of research institutions there I ended up falling into this intellectual milieu of uh, the Claremont Institute, which was this like philosophical think tank that focused on the application of the virtues and philosophies of the founding fathers into American public life. And around that time, it was like a pretty non-controversial, super smart Republican think tank that seemed to marry philosophy with like what is for the good of the city state. It sort of like sparked this weird journey into a right wing activist pipeline. One of the reasons that the Republican Party is so impactful in pushing together a Policy agenda from the like local level up to the federal is because there have been like decades and decades and decades of investment in not just think tanks but like cultivating younger activists, cultivating people who could run for office, people who can support them, legal scholars, what
2: have you. Peter Hamby had that great piece about that months ago, right? It was around Roe v. Wade and how. This has been decades in the making. So similar to what you're saying. Yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah. So um, I came of age. I wanted to be a journalist for the longest time. And I came of age right around this time where the uh, Koch brothers were thinking, hmm, you know, what's a good idea. We should start investing in conservative journalists and trying to find the next generation of young conservative writers. This has actually been a kind of thing going on in the right for a couple of decades now. Uh, there are all these other youth organizations that have a journalism center but I got an internship through one. And uh, this was the summer of 2009, right after the recession. And all of these uh, newspapers were shutting down their newsrooms and getting rid of their internship programs. And these guys swoop along and they're like, hey, are you a liberty-minded student who likes the free market? Do you want a paid internship in journalism this year? And I was like, Yes. Money, free markets
2: and liberty. Like who doesn't? That sounds great.
3: Yeah, exactly. Like it obviously came with things like like I got an internship that summer. I got to write for a policy publication in D.C. and got like several thousand dollars to have a decent life. They also use that opportunity to sort of engage. Introduce me into the wider world of conservative activism and the conservative political culture, which I would think is its completely own separate universe. Like, I had these seminars that I could attend for free. I uh, got invited to the official journalism mentorship program. Swear to God, that was really a thing. From there, I got connected to all of these right-wing publications that would hire me. I eventually ended up going to The Daily Caller to work for Tucker Carlson. And then about a year later, I was like, I don't know if I really wanted to keep doing political journalism So I ended up moving to New York and briefly working as a food writer before getting back into politics.
2: Mainly about hot dogs, I think.
3: Mm, I would say like 5% of the time was about hot dogs. (laughs) That's enough. That's enough of the time. Yeah. The thing is, is that like I didn't realize how unusual this background was until I got to Vanity Fair in like 2016 and started talking about this like universe of right-wing activists and politicians and the uh, way that the conservative movement was structured and the way that they thought. Until John Kelly started like gaping every time I started mentioning, oh yeah, I remember Steve Bannon. Like he had this reputation for blah, 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 blah back in the day. And like, I'm bringing up stuff from 2011 and he's like, Tina, can you write about this? This is so weird. Um, So I- it's definitely thanks to our beloved founder Jonathan Kelly that I am <laughs> cursed with this job. <laughs> it's not cursed. I'm not cursed. It's just it's just taken a much more wild direction than I thought it would have done back in like 2012 or something. It's just really strange to watch all of the people that you kind of knew in the background of your life suddenly achieve these positions of prominence and power or like these think tanks and publications that you just sort of shrugged at when you were younger. It's like, oh, yeah, that thing. Then all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, my old office mate now runs
2: the entire
3: D.C. Bureau of Breitbart. What the heck?
2: You know, I don't want to speak, you know, for our subscribers. I will speak for myself as a reader, which is I have found you to be an integral part of my media diet in understanding. The landscape of where we are in politics and ideology in America right now, you're very nuanced. You understand the people that you're talking about. You understand, even if you don't always agree with them, the perspectives that they may be coming with, which is why people are open to talking to you about their perspectives and their plans and what they're looking to do. So I have just found you to be incredibly, absolutely invaluable to me as as I'm thinking about the state of American politics today and and what kind of an informed citizen I want to be and an informed media reader I want to be.
3: Oh, my God, I'm blushing. You can't the listeners can't see us right now, but I am like I'm verklempt.
2: Well, this was great. And I also think that this was a really good kind of compliment to the conversation I had with Ben last week. I don't know if you heard it, but where I talked about how we get asked often, like, is puck left or is puck right? And the answer to me is that we're you know we're curious we're just curious about the people and the players and the choices that they make and we believe that it's important to cover both sides accurately and and deeply Mm. that's what I really love about working here I'm such a puck stand. it's embarrassing (laughs) it's not embarrassing get your hat get your tote bag (laughs) (laughs) well Tina thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today I hope you have a great weekend and I hope I get to see you in person soon you too it'll be so dope
0: thanks so much for listening to another episode of the powers that be as a reminder the powers that be is the official podcast of puck we'd like to thank ben landy liz goff and alex bigler for their editorial and production guidance if you like what you hear on this podcast please share with a friend it really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only puck can offer you can visit us at puck.news and on twitter at puck news i'm peter hamby see you next week